Shabbat Shalom, everyone. I heard that back there. That was so exciting. He's getting me encouraged before I even start. All right. So the, um, I want to make a quick announcement before I get into our message. Um, you, you noticed we did uh, a video uh, production for our worship time. Uh, we do that from time to time when we don't have live, live worship. Um, we have kind of bittersweet news. Um, we're going to do a lot more videos because our two worship leaders are uh, having families. And so um, both Megan and James are working on uh, uh, foster kids and a foster kids program. And uh, we just bless them in that. It is such an exciting thing for both of them. And so we are cheering them on and uh, blessing them as they uh, are closer and closer to uh, uh, having that family. And then also the Blooms, which are having a child, I think, probably a week ago. <laughs> They're about a week out, and so they are really close. And so uh, we wanted to go ahead and focus on those families and to have those families have a chance to really focus on what it is that they have set their hearts to. And so we have had to go ahead and put on pause, on hold, our live worship. Yeah, bittersweet. Hate to lose live worship, but families are more important. Marriages and families are more important than ministries. So, so yes, amen, amen. So we bless the Camerons and we bless the Blooms. We're so grateful and, and we're just here to support them as they uh, endeavor to uh, build family at this point in their lives. So thank you for that. So get your game on for these videos. I don't know about you. I love live worship. I love video worship. I just love worship. I can worship in the morning. I can worship in noonday, noontime or when the sun goes down. You know, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. When your heart is open to the Lord, it's all good. It's all good. So uh, let's press on and carry on as, as uh, we focus on our families. Thank you, Jesus. All right. So I've entitled this, The Lord is With Us. It's part of kind of a trilogy as we've stepped into, uh, a, a, I don't want to call it a series, but it is related and it's addressing what's going on in the Middle East. You say, well, that's kind of political. Yeah, the Torah is political. Israel is a nation. She's the central piece, theologically, of the Old and New Testaments. You cannot get away from it. We're in a world that's, that's interladen and overladen with the spiritual realm. And both the natural and the spiritual realm are interconnected. And so politics are a part of that. What's going on in our world geopolitically is related to all of us, and related to the gospel itself. So we are thrust into this because this is what's going on in the world around us. I could give you sermon after sermon after sermon about things that don't really matter or touch our lives. But that's not what I'm called to do. That's not what anyone's called to do. Every spokesperson of God is to be relevant in what is happening in the world around them and what the Lord is doing. So, I've entitled this, The Lord is With Us. The nations are beginning to gather around Israel again. People everywhere are lashing out at her and the Jewish people. 
A strong minority of people are standing with her. And amid this coming storm, the Lord promises to be with us. We can worry, we can wring our hands, or we can catch the providence of God and make our way together through this storm. Our decision? We will trust the Lord and carry on His mission and vision, trusting that He is in control, He's overseeing everything. Thus, we shall not fear. We shall not fear. I'm going to jump back into Revelation chapter 20 and pick up where we were last week, Revelation 21 through 3. Let me just read this. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand, and he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, threw him into the abyss, shut it, sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. I started this by talking about anti-Semitism, why the nations hate Israel. The last two sermons if you haven't heard those, go back. You can download those and listen to them to give you a context for what I'm talking about today. But for those that heard those, um, those are the framework of why the nations are so upset, why they hate Israel. It's all tied into the evil one, to Satan himself. He's the origin of anti-Semitism. He's the one that hates God, hates his Messiah, and hates his people. And he inspires others who are lost and under his spell to hate her, to hate the Jewish people, to hate the Messiah and the followers of Messiah. Now, it says that he is bound for a thousand years. The thousand years, I believe, is a figure of speech. It, can, it, it, it conveys in its meaning a very long period of time, an epoch. I don't think it's literal any more than I think that the phrases, the dragon, the great chain, the abyss, the key, those aren't literal either. They are figures of speech. They are symbols to communicate truths. So this idea of a thousand years, and we looked at that last week, you can go back and look at that teaching. It's just simply meant to convey a vast amount of time. And I believe it's a reference between his first coming and his second coming. That that span of time is an epoch. It's a vast number of years. From his first coming to his second coming is a millennium. Satan has been at war with God for ages. Again, he hates God. Hates his people, Israel. Especially hates his son, Jesus, who is the Messiah. And it was in his death and resurrection that Satan was stripped of most of his power and authority and that he was confined at that time to a specific locale. He's no longer able to deceive the nations. 2,000 years ago, he was stripped of his authority and power, limited. And from that point on, he could no longer deceive corporately the nations. 
In fact, it's after the resurrection of Jesus that we see for the first time in history nations coming into the light. Prior to that time, they're all under darkness. After Jesus' resurrection, the gospel goes forth. Not only are vast numbers of people believing in Jesus, entire nations are coming into the light. We'd never seen that before. Why? Satan's bound. He's no longer able to deceive the nations. The nations corporately are free to think. And as they're introduced to the gospel, they're embracing it and moving into it. We see the spread of Christianity moving around the globe. We see the kingdom of God starting out like a mustard seed. Twelve Jewish apostles, right? That was Jesus' core group. Twelve Jewish men that he chose for himself. That was the seed of the kingdom, if you will. And now it's grown into 2.6 billion believers with a B, not an M. In case you didn't hear me, 2.6 billion people. It's become larger than all other kingdoms. What's disturbing about all of this is the last part of verse 3. It states, after these things, when the millennium, that vast period of time, comes to an end, after these things, he, Satan, must be released for a short time. I don't know how long short is. It's going to be relative to how long the millennium was. And in relationship to that, it's a short period of time. Who knows how long that's going to be? We're going to pick this up just a in a few moments. But it's at this time that he's released that there will be a final and ultimate battle between good and evil, light and darkness, Satan and the Son of God. John tells us that, that Jesus came in his first coming, that the purpose of Jesus coming in his first coming was to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus is the divine invader coming from a different realm, breaking into our realm, seeking to take out the ruler of this world. This is a war. This is, this is what you see in these great messianic epic movies like Lord of the Rings, if you will, and Narnia. I know those are kind of pagan depictions to reach pagan people about this struggle between light and darkness. They're referencing, of course, the true light and the true darkness. You see Narnia, others can see Lord of the Rings, but we'll work it all out in Revelation 20. Okay, so, the final battle. Now, like all things, it is both a spiritual and natural battle. It's a heavenly battle and it's an earthly battle because the two realms intersect and overlap. So everyone's caught up in this. In fact, Revelation chapter 12 outlines the war in the realm of heaven between Michael and his angels, quote-unquote, and Satan and his angels, quote-unquote. Huge battle in the heavenlies. It says that Satan, the dragon, swept a third of the stars of heaven to the earth. 
What, what does that mean? That, that's, that's, that's heavenly language for casualties of war. That, that Satan cast to the earth with his tail. One third of the angels, one third of the angels were, were the casualty of that heavenly war. It was a huge war. And of course, Satan was defeated. But at, at a cost of one third of heaven's angels. Revelation 12, 12. Woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has come down to you to the earth, from the realm of heaven, the supernatural realm, the spiritual realm, to the earthly realm, the natural realm. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. Verse 17, so the dragon was enraged with the woman, which is symbolic and in reference to Israel. We'll have to unpack that at a later time. We can jump into chapter 12 at a later time and unpack that. Suffice it to say, Israel is the woman. So the dragon was enraged with the woman, went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So the wars come to us, to our world. Note well who Satan hates. First and foremost, Israel and the Jewish people. They have been in his sights from the beginning, and you can see that in biblical history. Over and over and over, the genocide of the Jewish people. This is coming right out of hell itself, inspired by Satan. And then number two, he hates the followers of Jesus. The followers of Jesus who are connected and grafted into Israel. That's why I said a couple weeks ago, the war is not only against Israel, it's against Jewish people everywhere. It's against Christians everywhere. Let me read verses 7 and 8. <coughs> Excuse me. When the thousand years are completed... Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations who are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. Again, he's released. To do what? To do what he had done before he was bound. What was that? Deceive the nations. So if that's true, what we ought to see when he's released is instead of the spread of Christianity, we should be seeing the decline of Christianity. Is that not what we've seen over the last 50, 60, 70 years? The de decline of Christian throughout Europe and other parts of the world, and now America, we're a post-Christian nation since the 1990s. Darkness is just growing everywhere. The, the nations are slipping into darkness once again. Gathering nations around Israel once again. It says, he'll be released from his prison. He'll come out to deceive the nations who are in the four corners of the earth. This word that we translate earth, it's interesting. It can also be translated as land, region, a territory, 
and its inhabitants. Eretz Israel, the land of Israel. I want you to think about this for a minute. Since we're dealing with apocalyptic literature, it's filled with symbols. We know there's no four corners. For us, you know, the earth is a sphere. Never thought I'd have to say that. That's the cue that this is symbolic language. And if that's true, then perhaps what it's referring to are the nations that surround the land of Israel, not the earth. How many nations border Israel? Four. Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, and Egypt. They are the nations that border Israel, surround Israel, or the corners of Israel, or the edges of the land, if you will. They are all under the spell of the Muslim Brotherhood. Many Muslim nations, if you've been watching the news, many Muslim nations protesting in the streets, chanting, death to Israel and death to America. That's not new, by the way. It's been going on for quite a while. In fact, Israel has been called the little Satan ever since she became a nation. And they've been calling the U.S. the great Satan. Right now, protests are breaking out all over the world with people chanting and screaming from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. And that's a coded message embedded in their charter, the Palestinian charter, that calls for all of the Jewish people in the land to be driven into the sea where they perish, literally. It's calling for the genocide of all Jews in the land, men, women, children, infants, even the children in the wombs to be destroyed. We saw that in what took place on October 7th. The slaughter of of young children, the slaughter of infants, what they did, I can't even speak here. It's unspeakable what they did. This is the spirit of Satan. Anyone who has eyes to see can see that this is a profound evil, a darkness that we have yet to ever have seen in, in our lifetimes. Now, we've sent our worships to the surrounding regions of Israel. We're the superpower. We're still the superpower. China is a close second, but we're still clearly the superpower. And we've taken some big, bad battleships over there in the surrounding regions of Israel. Iran is threatening Israel. Iran is threatening the USA. China has moved her ships into the region. Russia is poised with their hypersonic missiles that can reach the region at Mach 9. The storm clouds are gathering, and they are dark and they are ominous. I can hear 
the spirit of Shakespeare in Israel chanting, by the pricking of my thumbs, something wicked this way comes. We can all see it. Has all the earmarks of everything that we're reading. It's not the first time, maybe the last, maybe a forerunner of the last. But the nations are gathering around Israel once again. And the prophet who clearly spoke, and I shared this a couple weeks ago, said, every nation that tries to remove Jerusalem from her place will be severely injured. Our nation has been whacked, jacked, and insane for years now. Years now. I am so relieved that we have responded with so much power in moving our battleships to the Middle East, in gearing up for what's happening to Israel. I am so glad. I am so glad. I was getting so discouraged. I was getting so just, you know, you just get discouraged. And then all of a sudden, all of this is taking place, and our nation is doing something right. It was just like, wow, thank you, Jesus. Our leaders got it right. They're going to support your people. They're going to get over there, and they're going to support Israel and the Jewish people. And then out of the shadows comes Mike Johnson as Speaker of the House. I mean, who would have guessed that was going to happen, right? All the initial photos of Mike Johnson after he wins the speakership are him with his head bowed, everyone around him praying to Jesus, talking about Jesus, thanking Jesus. A couple days later, they're all kneeling on the floor in Congress, again praying, Mike leading that. I am encouraged once again. My discouragement has been displaced by what I see noteworthy, powerful signals that we are making the right moves at a critical time in our history. I pray that we are awakened by all that has happened. I pray that the world is shaken and awakened and that we return to Jesus, to God and His people. Because this has all the earmarks of a third world war, which will be nuclear, by the way. Make no mistake about it. You've got superpowers that have nuclear devices. And if this war breaks out, the chances of this thing going nuclear is really, really high. So pray. Pray like you've never prayed before, right? Revelation, let me read this again, work our way down to 8 and 9. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison, will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. They, come out, they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. Again, earth can be translated land, 
certainly be in reference to Israel. It says it surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. Two groups of people. The camp of the saints, the dwelling of the saints. Where is that? Everywhere the saints dwell. That's why I believe that we've seen Christians persecuted and martyred in all these different nations. And that has increased over the last couple decades, by the way. There's been an intensity of uh, people that hate Jews and Christians killing Christians in various nations for quite some time. The camp of the saints, it's a reference to believers. And believers in Jesus are automatically grafted into Israel. That's why we're part of the focus of these Islamic terrorists. It says that they also surround the beloved city. They also surround the beloved city. In reference to Salt Lake City? The city of the Mormons? Or, I'm sorry, Rome. Rome. Right? Where 1.3 billion Christians find their city? How about Mecca? No? Jerusalem. The beloved city is a reference to Jerusalem, the city of God, the city where God says, my name shall dwell forever and ever. This is where they're going to gather, and they are gathering. Now, we saw this before in 70 AD, when the entire Roman Empire and mercenary nations joined with her, mercenary armies joined with her to take down Jerusalem and the Jewish people. We saw this before. It's horrible. Josephus said there was never, ever a time in Israel's history as dark and desperate as that was. In the end, I believe it gets ramped up. In the end, I think it's even worse. The difference, though, is everything gets turned in an instant. And instead of defeat, like they saw in 70 AD, they see victory the second time. The second event is a victorious event on behalf of Israel. So they come with all their armies. They surround Jerusalem. They're ready to take her down. And in verse 9 it says, Fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now I want you to think about that. When you deal with apocalyptic literature, of course, it's, it's, it's got hyperbole in it. It overstates things. It's like it just puts it in, in the greatest possible depictions. But when you read the fulfillment of apocalyptic literature, it's always described in the natural realm through natural events. Either natural phenomenon tied into your weather and, and, and nature itself, and or vicious, powerful armies unleashing the terror. So when it says, saw fire come down from heaven, I really believe that God working with his people carry out what needs to be done. That very well could be Israel saying, enough is enough. And they unleash their arsenal of nuclear devices 
and light up the Middle East and their enemies perish in that judgment. God has always worked with his people through natural means. Doesn't mean he has to, but he has in the past. No matter which way you slice it, Israel's delivered. Her enemies are consumed in the fires. And she goes on into the age to come. And the wicked perish with their ruler in the lake of fire. So, in light of all this happy news, how should we live? What should we be doing? What should we be doing? Yeah, you, you know, there's a lot of different ways to approach this, but I don't want us to lose focus on our mission and vision. Do we need to prepare for hard times? Yeah, whether there's a war or not. We should always prepare for natural disasters and so forth, right? We can't lose our focus. The main thing we're supposed to do is to share the gospel with those around us, to be a light to the nations. Matthew 28, 16 through 20. This is the post-resurrection appearance of Jesus with his disciples. It said the 11 disciples went up to the mountain in Galilee where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they bowed down in worship, though some had doubts. When Jesus came near, he spoke to them and he said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So, wherever you go, make disciples of all the nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to do everything that I've commanded you. And remember that I'm always with you until the end of time. Doesn't matter how dark things get. Doesn't matter how desperate things get. He's with us. In the worst scenarios, he's with us. In the context of martyrdom, he's with us. We lose our life, but we gain it in the end because we have a forever life in him. So the crux of all the matter in every age, in every crisis, is where do you stand with the living God? Because without him, you'll perish in every generation. And with him, you'll be given a forever life. I want to make sure everyone here knows the Lord. That everyone here has a living, vibrant relationship with Jesus. Do you have a living, vibrant relationship with Jesus? We talked about this in the Torah class. Abraham was called when he was 15 years old. He, he didn't really get up and go, get going until he was, I think, 75. You know, that's when he really kind of got his faith walk on. But then for another 20 years or so of his faith walk, he still didn't get to the place where his faith was full enough that it resulted in him being born again. So you believe in Jesus? That's good. How much do you believe in him? Is he, is he close to you? Did you invite him into your heart? Is he your Lord and Savior? Yeah, you want to make sure he's your Lord and Savior. You want to make sure that you have said, Lord Jesus, come into my life. You be my Lord and Savior. I make you my Lord and Savior. Forgive me of my sins. I don't want to perish in the fires. I want to live forever. I want to know your love. I want to be embraced by you. Come into my life. Cause me to be born again. If you've not done that, that's where you want to start. 
That's where you want to begin. I'm out of time. You can see me out of the sur- after the service if you want to do that. No- number two, number two, get baptized. Get baptized. If you believe and you've asked them into your life and you've not been baptized, see me after service. We have a baptismal tank right there behind the curtain. We will do that for you. And then as you come here on a regular basis, we will disciple you. We will help you get strong and wise and prosperous in your life so that you can be a light to those around you and bring them into the kingdom. That is the mission and vision of Jesus. That is the mission and vision of the harvest. Share the love of God. Be a light to the nations. Lead people to Jesus. Ask them if they say, well, I believe in Jesus. Okay, well, have you been baptized? Well, I have them. Well, we can do that for you. Bring them to church. We'll get them baptized here, right? I've been baptized too. Well, where do you go to church? I don't. Well, you need to. Jesus commands you to. And I have a really good place where I go. So why don't you come with me? That's how we grow the kingdom. That's how we grow it. Church by church. Advancing the kingdom of Christ on earth as it is in heaven. In the context of wars and, and, and horrible times and in the context of really good times and prosperous times. In all contexts, we are here to share the gospel, make disciples, baptize and make disciples of Jesus. That's who we are. So, skitter game on. Skitter, the end is closer than it's ever been before. It's true in every generation, right? True in every generation. So let's uh, step it up and make sure that we're praying daily for Israel, for each other, and that we're being a light to the nations. Shabbat Shalom.